Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. And today, we're going to look at how stocks are likely to rip up the yield curve inversion playbook with some fancy new yield curve terms. Ooh, plus, we'll take a look <laughs> at drug prices. Will patients ever get a break from ever-rising prices? But first, we're going to focus here uh, on General Electric. The stock got really hammered a couple weeks ago when a hedge fund came in there, aggressively short, saying pretty bad accusations against the company. And we want to drill into it with Joe Levington. Uh, he's Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst uh, for credit. So, First of all, this hedge fund story, put that in perspective for us. Sure, Alex. Um, you know, what the, what the hedge fund was basically implying is that uh, GE is going to be vulnerable to liquidity events, uh, mainly because they're, in their view, hiding different liabilities uh, on and off their balance sheet. I guess my perspective on it is that uh, there are some issues that are, you know, like well-known and documented uh, that haven't happened yet, including uh, the unrealized loss that they have on bigger Hughes, as well as increasing pension and insurance liabilities. Uh, but the company does document these things. They are in their 10Ks and their 10Qs, if one reads them. Uh, but they will cause uh, an impact to credit, uh, which will make the credit uh, improvement story harder to achieve. So, Joel, when we think about GE, you know, investors think about the stock and how the stock's just gotten crushed over the years. Give us a sense, though, as this company is trying to turn itself around, how the balance sheet shapes up? Does it? Do they have the balance sheet to weather this turnaround? Uh, they don't, uh, and that's why they're in the process of making a large asset sales call. Uh, one that will be happening soon is their biopharma business, the Danaher, which will, should bring in about next, uh, $20 billion. Uh, but after they bring in that, they still think that they need another $10 billion or so to go to kind of get to their target of net, uh, net leverage of two and a half times. 
Uh, what I would argue is that that is probably the wrong target and that they probably need something more conservative uh, than that amount if you contrast them to other similarly rated industrials in their category. Um, they usually average more like uh, two times on a gross basis as opposed to two and a half times on a net basis. And I would argue that most of their peers in that category have uh, much higher margins and more consistent cash flow. Well, what I found interesting um, about the hedge fund story, and then this also wraps into to credit, is that the way the market reacted, like a lot of short sellers can come out. And if you're like a small cap stock, yeah, your stock will get hammered. But this is GE. And the market took it so seriously, so fast. If you're a bondholder, how do you interpret something like that? Well, I think uh, with GE, it's very much uh, shoot first and ask questions later uh, because they have disappointed so many times. And I think people still view the, the business uh, as very much of a black box. And when people are scared of those, uh, and particularly in times where it's uh, a little bit more of a risk-off trade, uh, the market reacts violently on those. I think when you take a step back and kind of pick apart what the hedge fund was saying, many of the facts um, – are true and known, uh, if not a has. And, and, and there are other items that clearly look like you're a short seller in there. And, uh, you know, like the following day, the stock uh, had rebounded 10%. The bonds were back up, although not uh, back to the levels that they were before the event happened. To me, that feels more like an opportunity to, uh, you know, like reevaluate the bonds and say, you know, the risk in the near term is quite modest, uh, given that they do have an inflow of cash coming in. Uh, and yet the bonds, even on the short end of the side, meaning like 20s and 21 bonds, uh, are wider today than they were a week ago. Um, so that might be, uh, you know, things that bondholders might, uh, you know, think about. So, Joel, what do you, you know, from a, the credit perspective here for GE suggested, even after some of the divestitures, uh, they still might not have the balance sheet that they need. It's awful tough to have a bullish call on growing their cash flow. So what do you think uh, bond... Uh, investors are thinking about when they when they take a look at GE these days. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a fun game working with rating agencies. Uh, you know, the raters and uh, I talk to them frequently uh, really have uh, limited tolerance to downgrade the company, and so it, it presents a conundrum because the the metrics that they have uh, don't come anywhere near to what the ratings are, and yet the ratings. Uh, really aren't going to move all that much. I, I would say probably in a worst case, no more than one notch to mid triple B from high triple B. So I think if you're thinking about it as a portfolio manager or an investor, you're saying uh, it's yieldy, uh, it's wide of all the peers, it's wide for legitimate reasons. Um, and yet, if I need to own paper and I am playing in a game where I need absolute performance, the bonds, um, you know, are a lot more interesting on that basis. Uh, and if I'm trying to play it in a more um, risk, uh, risk-free risk way, then I'm looking towards the short end of the curve, uh, where I'm not taking long GE exposure in case Larry Culp isn't able to turn the businesses around. Well, I was going to say the credit risk versus duration risk when it comes to GE. Uh, sure. Well, you know, the credit risk is high, but if you take high risk for a short period of time, uh, I think you're fine in this, in this story, whereas if you're taking it for a long time, uh, while you might be picking up some yield, uh, you also have a much bigger bet that the company can turn things around. Now, Larry Culp, if you look at his history at Danaher, has been an excellent operator. Uh, he's been very transparent, uh, and he's also operated with a lot less leverage uh, than what GE has originally spoken to. And I wouldn't be surprised 
uh, once they get to their two and a half times target, if they reassess that and you know, like try to lower it further, uh, unfortunately, that's largely going to need to come from operating improvement, and that's something that is a question mark that you know, like, still plagues the company and probably will for 2020 and possibly for 2021. The calm perspective from Mr. Joe Levington, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst for Credit. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, if you're right on Madoff, are you right on GE? That's the question percolating in the market after a forensic accountant did some work on GE and came up with some not so great uh, conclusions. Joining us here is Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Karen Ubelhart. Karen, what was right? What was not? What's true here? Uh, you know, I'd say at a big picture level, um, does GE kind of push the envelope a little bit on accounting? They do. Uh, do they, you know, break the law? I don't think so. But they and some of the things he said, for example, Baker Hughes should be consolidated. It, it does not have to be consolidated, but they own 50.2 percent, probably so they don't have to consolidate it. So, I mean, that is, you know, because if you sell under 50, you do. And they'd have to take an eight or nine billion dollar book loss. Not cash loss, book loss. So that's what they're trying to avoid. So that's a, eh, you know, but so what that means is they're probably not going to sell that right away. Um, the, the insurance, there is so many assumptions in figuring out long-term um, insurance reserves. Uh, I think they did the kitchen sink last year, um, but they lower interest rates don't help. So there might be adjustments to that. Um, but he was, there was a lot of mixing and matching, I think. But I am not an insurance, you know, insurance analyst. Um, so I don't 100%. I mean, is there some truth? There might be. But a lot of it was, in my opinion, exaggeration. All right. So this forensic accountant calls into question certain accounting principles at General Electric and saying that there may be uh, some, some accounting issues. What did G, how did GE respond? They went through each item. It's really two items on um, the long-term insurance that um, they add up to that GE needs to take another, uh, you know, $30 billion, uh, you know, hit to their reserve. And they would have to put some cash behind that. That's a big number. That's a and big the number. other one is they should be um, consolidating Baker Hughes, which is not true. They should not be consolidating. They can't, according to Gap, until they mm-hmm. sell down. So did it tell you anything, though, on the stock reaction? Yes. People are very nervous. There's a lot of unknowns. Let's face it. Long-term insurance is a liability that's going to live. These people are only 75 years old. That's not even when you start spending. The average age is 75 years old, but you start spending 80, 85. So they've got, this thing's got a long tail. That's going to hover over them for a while. Power has stabilized, but is it fixed? Um, You know, the thing I am more comfortable with is um, on the liability side, um, they're going to be able to pay down a lot more debt than we expected because he's doing a big sale. He's selling the biopharma business for 20. He's going to get $20 billion. That solves a lot of problems from the debt side for them. So there's some good things happening on the financial side, the operational side. It's at least stabilized. Um, And so. So the stories, one of the focuses has been, you know, the power businesses you mentioned, the cash flow that you mentioned. So the power business still is, is that still kind of the main driver that for investors focusing on? Yes. From an operational point of view, the businesses that are left, um, you know, healthcare is doing great. Aerospace is doing more than great. Um, oil service is not great, but it's small. So yep. power is the big, you know, thing around their neck. And all they can do is shrink it because the demand is permanently smaller and they've mm-hmm. got a size. Why is that. demand permanently smaller? Um, the uh, just power has gone a lot more to distributive power, which is smaller. You, you know, we have huge utilities here and they yep. use big turbines. That's their core product line in that. That's where they make all their money. They thought 
that Asia and a lot of the emerging markets would also use those big turbines, oh, okay. and they're mm -hmm. using smaller stuff. And so mm -hmm. they're not the only one that got caught, but the the uh, megawatt, the uh, the gigawatt needs are cut by fifty percent on wow. a global basis. So they, Siemens, Mitsubishi, had way, way, way too much capacity. But, yeah, the whole industry just yes. made the wrong call, yes. the wrong yes. bet in that respect. And GE was late to recognize it. So. so to that point, I mean, when you talk, when you hear, you know, Larry Culp on the call, et cetera, I mean, it seems like, okay, we just need time. We just need time. We're working on it. We know the problems. We're working on it. If a recession hits, though, in the next 18 months, like, that's a really bad timing. Yeah. I mean, they, they do need time on their side. I mean, that's why people do get nervous. They still have liabilities they've got to deal with if they get a bad market. A bad market isn't built into his expectations. Right. So, and the thing about GE, they have all long lead time stuff. Like, so if we go into a recession, airspace isn't going down tomorrow, but it'll go down with a lag. So they've got some time, but at the end of the day, if there's a recession, people are going to travel less. Eventually it's going to hurt the parts business. Um, you know, healthcare, that's pretty stable. Um, power, um, you know, that could take another whack down. I, I would, you know, I wouldn't be... I would think like the impact of a recession is bigger on like a deep cyclical like Caterpillar, but it certainly wouldn't help. They need aerospace to hold together. They, they you know, that's really uh, the most, um, you know, worrisome piece if we had a big recession. But as I said, it would take some time. For it so, to you know, it's interesting. I'm just looking at the five-year chart of the stock on the Bloomberg and it's, it's not pretty. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering Diplomatic. what is the bull case here for GE? Is it just, boy, this thing's cheap. And if you've got a long-term horizon, you're going to be okay? Yeah. I mean, if you do some of the parts, and of course there are issues because we have known liabilities and then we have some holes we don't really, you know, really can't quantify. Um, and But if you do some of the parts analysis, that aerospace business is worth a lot of money. And, and you can get aerospace and healthcare, you know, to add up more to more than eight bucks. But they've you, what you, mm. the other part of that is the the liability side which we don't fully have our arms around it is but. a truly fascinating like century though for for ge like what it was to what it is now and the journey like are they going to study this i feel like a tom king question coming on right now are they going to study <laughs> this in business school well karen is going to write the the case because you've right. covered yes. it from welch yeah. to yeah. ml yeah. to this yeah. new thing so. i guess in hindsight like it's a great question What's jack welch's legacy in your mind now because you were there when he was yeah. jack welch well, but now at eight dollars a share, I don't know. Well, I the the book there was a book written in the house that Jack built, and I felt before this happened that when the when the credit sub started to blow up, right, yep, they yep. made more than fifty percent of their income out of that credit sub, and he really liked it. Built it into lots of unusual businesses, not tied to the the equipment businesses, et cetera. So as that started to blow up, and that was five or six years ago, it's like, uh, is this well, who's going to write the book? the straw house that Jack, right. Built. Okay. You know, you know, like, oh, you know, so title. it's, yeah, it's the house uh, with bad plumbing that Jack. Yeah. Built. Yeah. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. because Emil got hit with some of that and Emil yes. had to shrink that business dramatically. He didn't create that mess. Then we had the financial crisis and you have a, you have a black box, you know, credit sub that's huge. And he had to deal with that, you know, from an operating basis, um, the numbers were were in the operating businesses. The numbers were good under Jack Welch for sure, but that credit sub, in retrospect, mm. was it so a good idea for it to be so big? Karen Ubehart, we are waiting for the book from you on GE. <laughs> are you really writing one? No, no. <laughs> I, I'm 
pretty gullible. So I'm like, cool. I want to read yeah. it. <laughs> she's a, now she's been covering the stock for a long time, has great perspective on GE and all things across uh, the industrial space. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Karen Ubelhart covers industrials for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much. I remember like 10 years ago, I really wanted to get green bonds on TV and everyone thought I was insane. And now they're like the hot ticket. The it's hot all about ticket. ESG investing. To know how to ESG invest, you have to know what companies are doing about their carbon emissions. So for that, Bloomberg Intelligence created a CO2 forecast tool and analyst Eric Kane on Global Utilities Decarbonization is joining us now. So Eric, what is this forecast tool that you guys have come up with and what does it tell me if I'm an investor? The tool is really designed to give investors a sense of how different companies across different industries are setting targets to reduce their carbon emissions. So what we're able to do using publicly available data and the data that we have on the terminal is look at uh, historic emissions and then look at companies' uh, publicly stated targets and forecast those out to 2030. And the reason we use 2030 as the, the kind of benchmark year is that's a year that has been identified as kind of a significant year by the uh, IPCC, IEA, different regulatory bodies kind of view that as a, as a critical year in, in an effort to reduce carbon emissions. So I know you guys at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, kind of applied this model to the utilities industry, the global utilities industry, and I would think they would have a tough time on the carbon emissions side of the equation. What'd you guys find? That's exactly right. So we do know that um, global utilities are responsible for about 40% of global CO2 emissions. So a lot of uh, emphasis in terms of decarbonization is ultimately placed on the utilities industry. So what we saw, our analysis really looked at four different regions. We looked at the US, EU, Japan, and China. And what we see there is the US and EU are leading in terms of companies setting individual targets. And then when you look at aggregate performance going forward to 2030, they're better positioned to meet targets that have been established by the uh, International Energy Association, whereas Japan and China are, are lagging not only in terms of setting targets, but even disclosing uh, historic performance. In terms of companies, I mean, a lot of companies set emission targets, right? How many of them actually meet them? And um, are there ways around it where you can you can sound really good, but it doesn't actually work? It's a great question. And I think it does vary from industry to industry. When we look at utilities, we do have examples of regulation that really kind of force the issue. So certainly in the EU, you have the EU ETS or the emissions trading scheme. Uh, here in the U.S., we do have a kind of hodgepodge of different uh, regulatory regime. So in the Northeast, there's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which covers a number of states. So in those instances, it's very difficult for companies to kind of make a pledge or and and not ultimately, um, you know, reduce to that extent. Um, but we do see in other industries that companies are are able to, you know, fudge the numbers a little bit. Um, and one of the ways that they can do that is by using offsets. So it's mm -hmm. not necessarily that they're reducing their own emissions. They're typically purchasing, you know, offsets or, or credits uh, to kind of neutralize their own emissions. So what are the remedies if the regulators find a company or an industry or something that's really chronically not meeting emission standards? What are the remedies? It's a tough question because currently there, there aren't a lot of remedies. We don't have... Um, you know, regulations in place for, for most industries. The regulations that I mentioned a few moments ago uh, typically focus on very carbon intensive industries. So uh, in terms of Reggie here in the Northeast United States, 
that's really just focused on power generation. The EU ETS does identify some other carbon intensive uh, industries. So typically those are the ones that aren't able to kind of get around the regulation. And, and the reason being there's a cost to pay. So if they don't reduce their emissions uh, by a certain amount, then they ultimately have to, to pay for that. I joked in the beginning about trying to get a green bond sale on TV, but genuinely the theory behind that is that now investors really care. Like before it was like a niche thing, but now ESG investing in particular is something that, you know, pension funds across the, you know, ISS, like shareholders are really into. Do they have the power to force companies to actually do something more meaningful? Absolutely. That's a that's a key part of the puzzle. And you're absolutely right in, in mentioning pension funds, because one of the things that we saw earlier this year was a, a number of the largest pension funds here in the U.S., including CalPERS, essentially sent a letter to the 20 largest publicly traded utilities in the U.S. Mm. demanding um, kind of an indication as to how those companies were going to go about being carbon neutral by 2050. So certainly investors have a huge role to play in kind of forcing the issue. You ask any oil company right now, the big ones, and they're going to be like, no, 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 we're totally oh, big yep. energy. We're doing, <laughs> we're going to change what we are and yep. the energy we produce. And you're like, Okay. They have no choice. They have to go. This I know, way. but you wonder yeah. like who's going to get there first. All yeah. right, Eric, good stuff. Really appreciate it. I'm glad to check that out. The CO2 forecast tool, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, Eric Kane. Well, most consumers agree that drug prices are too high. Drug companies on their side respond that the pricing simply reflects R&D costs that are needed to develop the drugs. Let's get some more detail. We welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Jonathan Palmer covers all things on the healthcare side. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us. Just give us a sense of kind of where we are now in terms of the pricing environment for dr drugs in general. Sure, Paul. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, we've seen a lot of rhetoric in the media and on the uh, political news side, um, you know, with drug prices really being at the forefront and healthcare costs and people being able to afford their medicines. And so, We've actually seen, you know, a lot of movement in drug prices in the last year. I know consumers probably don't feel like they, they're feeling it in the pocketbook. But, you know, President Trump's uh, saber, rattle, saber rattling last year and he put out a blueprint to lower drug prices. While a lot hasn't actually happened on the regulatory front, it's changed the behavior of the big drug companies to be uh, more moderate in their price increases and in some cases even take prices down. So for which kind of drugs, which companies? You know, it's been across the board. Hmm. Uh, you know, on the branded side, we've seen seen a fair number of price decreases. Now, to be fair, uh, these have been on older drugs, things that aren't as growthy, uh, the growth drivers for the big drug manufacturers. So, you know, they're 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 taking uh, you know some of the things that that you know they probably would have raised prices slowly over time and just said, okay, we won't raise prices, and we essentially are are doing good for the community and and the country. Um, but on, on the, the growthier side, drugs like diabetes drugs and, and some of the oncology drugs, we have seen them be uh, a little more constrained in their pricing behavior. So traditionally in the past maybe 10 years, the past decade from like 2005 to 2015, a lot of drug manufacturers would take their prices up by double digits every single year in lockstep. You'd see a price increase in January and a price increase in July. And really now we're seeing nobody really going over that 10% you know, increase hurdle, which it's still a 10% increase uh, for a lot of things, but it's, it's not nearly as high. And a lot of times we're seeing even more constrained price increases, something like 3 to 4%. So is that, is, this, is that kind of scenario, is that true for both branded drugs and generics? Um, or is it just kind of, because it seems like the branded drugs still have a lot of pricing power. So the branded side is where manufacturers have all the pricing power. 
Um, interestingly enough, generic prices have been falling rather dramatically for the last couple of years, and it's, it's actually been a very big headwind for generic manufacturers. So the the Mylans and the Tevas and the Sandozes of the world have been really feeling a, a, a pretty big pinch from prices declining in the U.S. And, and the reason for that is that there's been um, a number of uh, mergers over the last couple of years, so there's oversupply. And there's been a number of Indian manufacturers who are subsidized by their own government um, who can just push their volume into the U.S. And, and kind of don't really care about what pricing they get. It's all profit for them. So it's been actually driving prices of generics down pretty substantially. The reality, though, is that most consumers don't really feel this because everybody uh, pays, you know, like 5 or 10 or $25 for their generic copay. Um, but the businesses that, that depend on it, the distributors and the pharmacies are, are kind of bearing the brunt of that, that decrease. So you mentioned that they kind of don't go over the 10% cap. Are we going to see something realistically where the government's going to say, okay, like a rent control department, like you can raise your prices every year, but it has to be between this band and you can't go over it for a life? Well, interestingly enough, that's one of the, the strategies that President Trump is pushing. It's a, a reference pricing model saying, you know, the U.S. isn't going to pay more than some basket of companies, typically, you know, ones in Europe and, and maybe Canada, Japan, you know, developed markets where where they say, you know, we don't want to pay more for this oncology drug than, than Germans are or the British. And so that hasn't come to pass yet, but it's moving in that direction, at least from the administrative side. All right. Let me ask a silly question here, a basic question. How is... How does a drug company actually price a drug? Do they do like what other businesses do, which looks at their all-in cost of goods sold, think about some margin they want to earn, and then price it that way? Well, that's I think a really good question. I don't think <laughs> yeah, I've ever. I don't that. know the answer to that. <laughs> I think they'll tell you that's how they do it, um, but I think the reality is that they do a lot of pricing analysis and they see what the market will bear. And unfortunately, how drug pricing works is that you know, the newest, greatest product comes out and they always price it at a premium to the last generation of uh, treatments. And so for something like uh, multiple sclerosis, there was some drugs in the late 90s um, that were efficacious. And then newer drugs came about. And every year, every new drug came in at a higher price point, you know, per month or per, per treatment. And ironically, the ones that were older uh, kind of moved their, their prices up in lockstep saying, mm -hmm. well, we're providing the same amount of value as the newer drugs. Um, so I I think the drug companies, and I used to work at a big drug company here in New York, will tell you that they do all this analysis and, and look at all this stuff. But I, I think at the end of the day, they really look at what the market will bear and, and you know, how much bad press they'll get and, and price right in that sweet spot. Jonathan, super appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst and Jonathan Palmer. Right now, let's turn our attention to the yield curve. We have an inverted yield curve for some time here. And obviously, for many investors, that raises concerns about a recession going forward. To get a sense of kind of what that means for the equity markets, we welcome our good friend, Gina Martin-Adams. She's the equity strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina, thanks so much for being with us. I know you've been working on kind of the inverted yield curve and what it means for stocks. What are some of your takeaways? Yeah, so we started looking into the yield curve mostly because last week there did appear to be some panic when the tens twos curve, the 10-year, two-year treasury curve inverted very briefly. And the 10-year, three-month curve has been inverted for most of the last several months. Uh, and obviously this creates some degree of concern on the part of the equity investor just looking at historical averages, you would say, okay, suddenly the clock has struck midnight on the economic cycle. The yield curve inverts, and then it's all over from there. But when we looked back in history, we found there's something really, really unique about the 2019 inversions, and that is that the inversions are coming as yields across the curve are rallying. So rates are falling. The yield curve is inverting as rates fall. There's only one example of this happening in history. 
and it was 1998. All of the other inversions happened as rates were rising. So he said, wow, what's, you know, what does this really mean? Um, and I think that the reality is what it means is part of the reason why the yield curve causes a recession is because rates are rising, yields are rising, the cost of borrowing is increasing, and that squeezes off capital to the private sector, certain portions of the private sector. So if rates are falling and the yield curve is inverting, what's the signal? You still have the signal for banks, right? Mm -hmm. the, the spread between borrowing and lending conditions is obviously not very supportive of bank lending, but you're missing that extra portion that typically drives us into recession, and that is yields are rising, squeezing off, borrowing capacity for companies, and that slows economic growth. So I do think that the reality of the yield curve inversion is a little bit different relative to certainly historical yield curve inversions and may actually be a little bit more like the 1998 experience than any other. And that's the difference between uh, like a bull flattener versus a bear flattener, right? Yes. Yeah. Like are, are you buying them all across the board? You just happen to be buying the long end more versus uh, right. the other, which is you're selling all of them, but you're selling the back end less. Yeah. And so I call it a bull inversion. I don't know if there's actually a, t a term bull inversion, but that's <laughs> but what I've been calling it huh. because it is very, very unique. I mean, normally you have inversions that are very bearish because the Fed is tightening policy very quickly. Long rates are rising as well, but they're wrong. They're rising at a slower pace than short rates. And that's how the curve inverts. This time is not that case. The Fed stopped tightening in December. They've only been incrementally easing more. Short rates are rallying and long rates are rallying even more than short rates. So are you suggesting that maybe this inverted yield curve um, is not going to be as predictive as maybe it has been in the past and therefore perhaps not a recession over the next yeah, months? Yeah, I think it uh, it definitely depletes its predictive capability when you've got the, the sort of two-sided story where yields are falling. You're not going to see companies come under much more restrictive borrowing conditions unless you get a really significant deterioration in growth, right? That, all bets are off. If, uh, you know, the trade war escalates more, companies really have to stop investing because they're very, very concerned about growth. If the U.S. consumer stops spending, it's a huge concern. And obviously, recession is most likely imminent. But in terms of the yield curve as a signal, I would say it's you've got a much better chance that it's currently signaling an extension of the economic cycle rather than an end of it. And that's what we heard also from other strategists who didn't do the nuance of the work, but still said, even if it does, you know, force out of the end of the cycle, you still have like 11 to 18 months where you can still buy equities. So I guess the question is, regardless of the why, so how does then the why inform the what you then buy? It's a good question. Uh, in terms of the equity market, given our only historical experience is 1998, we looked back at 1998 to look at you know, sector trends, factor performance, that kind of thing surrounding that yield curve inversion. And what you found was you did obviously have a very short-term disruption in stocks. I mean, obviously, the long-term capital management fiasco yep. created a 20% correction in stocks. But when you look at sector performance, the winning sectors coming in, the winning styles coming in, that was growth and technology, were leading into the 98 correction, became leaders again on the way out of that correction. So our working presumption is, look, even though yield spreads are inverting, even though everyone's very worried about economic growth, even though the Fed is going to ease policy, it's probably not the time to rotate into value, beaten up value names. This is not the catalyst that maybe everyone's looking for to rotate out of this cycle's winners and into some of the losers. 
Um, and this is largely reflected in our sector uh, allocation model, which continues to say stocks in the technology set growth companies, as well as the dividend paying stocks, the high yield companies are the best positioned sectors in the S&P 500. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Gina Martin-Adams is the senior uh, equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. I feel like that was like the deepest conversation we've had on the yield curve. Yes. It was, was like, good. I feel like that was, like, was deep and, and solid but and we did not serious. Get, we did not talk about convexity. We didn't. Oh, <laughs> we'll have to retape that. All right. <laughs> the, uh, this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, you can check it, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence on BIGO on the Terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.